In the intricate web of human existence, our origin story is often dictated by the hands we didn't choose. Our parents. This lack of agency over our beginnings isn't always benign, as parents exert significant influence in shaping who we ultimately become. While genetic factors and external life events certainly play a role in our development, the impact of parental choices looms large. Even seemingly mundane decisions, like choosing a name, can set the stage for an individual's entire life. Economists Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt, known for their work in Freakonomics, delve into this realm. They introduce us to sociologist Dalton Connolly, who did a unique experiment naming his children E and Yo, the latter's full name being Yozing Haino Augustus Eisner Alexander Weiser Knuckles. Connolly was attempting to find out how having a weird name affects one's development. Furthermore, the Freakonomics experts introduce us to Professor Latanya Sweeney, a researcher and professor at Harvard who revealed bias within Google Ads, indicating that distinctively black names receive 25% more ads about prison and arrest records, irrespective of actual criminal history. Dubner and Levitt argue that while a name may not wield overwhelming influence, it certainly serves as a signal from parents about who they are, rather than a prescription for who they want their children to become. Higher income families often opt for popular names, with the exception being educated liberal mothers, who are 50% more likely than their conservative counterparts to choose unique names. Yet the influence of our parents extends beyond naming conventions. Sociologists term this phenomenon intergenerational transmission, where behavioral patterns, including dysfunctional ones, are passed down through generations. This gives rise to paradoxical situations, such as children of abuse perpetuating abusive behaviors, despite having first-hand knowledge of its consequences. Understanding historical figures, particularly delving into the psyche of leaders like Richard the Lionheart, demands a comprehensive grasp of their entire life. Our upbringing molds our identity, serving as an internal compass through life's trials. In Richard's case, with a family moniker like the Devil's Brood, exploring his upbringing becomes crucial in deciphering the influences that ultimately shaped his soul. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses on the English king, Richard the Lionheart. Episode number one, The Devil's Brood. The upbringing of the boy destined to become King Richard I is anything but simple, as is often the case with historical figures. His story, however, is complicated by two distinct factors, 
The first factor that heightens the complexity is the limited pool of names in Europe during this era. While there's only one Richard in our story, there is a notable repetition in the names of the surrounding cast of characters. The second factor that adds to the challenge in understanding Richard's rise is the absence of a well-established map of Europe. At this point in time, France does not hold its present west coast. Instead, the country is roughly half of its current size. Richard is set to ascend to the English throne in 1189, and it is crucial to note that this moment is 123 years after William the Conqueror embarked from the beaches of Normandy, which now is a part of modern-day France, in order to establish the foundation of England. Richard becomes the sixth monarch on the English throne, and if there were a succession betting line, he would have been considered the longest of long shots. Let's start our narrative with the family patriarch, Henry II. Henry, the great-grandson of William the Conqueror, held Normandy as his first official fiefdom in what is now northern France. Known for his good looks, intelligence, and proficiency in multiple languages, Henry II was also likely afflicted with ADHD. He was a womanizer, and he harbored a violent temper. As a father, he played his children against each other, favoring one at the expense of the others. Stephen was the king situated between Henry I and Henry II. When Henry I passed away without a direct heir, he designated his daughter Matilda, our Henry's mother, as the heir to the throne. However, many barons opposed the idea of a female ruler and instead supported Henry's nephew, Stephen. This disagreement plunged England into a bloody and bewildering civil war that lasted for 19 years. Matilda at one point even sat on the throne, having Stephen imprisoned. But ultimately, Stephen emerged victorious. Henry, gathering his forces from Normandy to support his mother's cause, ran out of funds and had to borrow money from Stephen to return home across the English Channel. Though ultimately unsuccessful in his initial attempts to overthrow his relative, Henry's third invasion proved successful, ending the Civil War. Grieving the loss of his wife and son earlier in the year, King Stephen agreed to a peace deal, allowing him to retain the throne for the remainder of his life, while Henry would be designated as his official heir. By 1154, Stephen succumbed to a stomach illness, and Henry was crowned King of England within the year. Before digging deeper, let's take a brief step back in time. During the Civil War, France intervened in an attempt to wrest Normandy away from Henry. In a peace agreement that prevented France from siding with Stephen, Henry conceded that the Duke of Normandy would henceforth be a legal vassal to the King of France. This arrangement meant that after Henry became the King of England, he was also legally obligated to serve the King of France, at least when he was operating as the Duke of Normandy. 
Henry strategically cultivated a surprisingly amicable relationship with King Louis of France, positioning himself within the French court to expand his land holdings in mainland France, including the province of Anjou. It was also during this period that Henry deftly positioned himself into the intimate sphere of the king's wife, Eleanor. The introduction of Eleanor is where, for Richard, the story would begin. Eleanor, at the outset, was married to the king of France, not Richard's father. Unfortunately, most historians have relegated Eleanor to the background. Regardless of gender, she stands out as one of the most unique characters in history. She concluded her time on Earth as the queen to the kings of two major countries and the mother to two others. She ruled in the stead of one son and would have arguably fared better ruling in place of the other. Eleanor participated in two separate crusades and rebelled against her husband in an attempt to depose him from the throne. Born in what is now southern France in the region known as Aquitaine, Eleanor holds a special place in Richard's heart. He famously quipped, I care not an egg for England and half-jokingly attempted to find a buyer for the entire city of London. But he never had such thoughts towards his mother. Eleanor inherited Aquitaine at the tender age of 18 upon her father's untimely death, instantly making her the most sought-after bachelorette in all of Europe. Alone, yet at the age of marriage, Eleanor and her landholdings were entrusted to the throne of France. Within hours of her father's death, she was betrothed to the king's son, Louis. Learning of the news, courtesy of the 500 soldiers sent by the king to escort her to the capital, she married in 1137 and, in a surprising twist, became the Queen of France six months later on Christmas Day after Louis's father suddenly passed away. Her husband, King Louis's reign, left much to be desired, as it was marked by consistent failures, especially on the military front. To regain the Pope's confidence, Louis accepted a request to participate in a crusade, with Eleanor joining him. However, failure dogged Louis at every turn during the Second Crusade. Fifteen years and two daughters later, the Pope granted their legal separation, citing close blood relations as justification for the divorce. The separation included a heart-wrenching clause prohibiting Eleanor from ever seeing her daughters again. Cast out, Eleanor embarked on the perilous journey back to Aquitaine in southern France. The road posed added dangers, as anyone could seize and force her into a binding marriage. After all, she still legally owned Aquitaine and had received portiers as a wedding gift from her father-in-law. The practice of kidnapping future brides, though barbaric, persisted in the noble aristocratic courts of Europe. One such attempt was even made by Henry's brother, Joffrey, the first of several Joffreys to enter this narrative. Eleanor was safely rescued off the road by her lover and Richard's father, Henry as the two had secretly been carrying on an affair behind Louis's back for years. 
Within eight weeks, the 19-year-old Henry and the 30-year-old mother of two and former Queen of France were married. The union of Henry's French lands and Eleanor's land holdings bestowed upon Henry more French land than the King of France had. Within a year and a half of their marriage, Stephen passed away, and Henry and Eleanor ascended to the throne as King and Queen of England. Their combined empire came to be known as the Angevin Empire. If one evaluates Eleanor solely in terms of producing heirs, she emerges as one of the most prolific queens in European history. Over the next 12 years, the 30-year-old Eleanor bore Henry eight children. Four of her sons survived infancy, and three daughters became influential pawns in expanding the family's land holdings. The sons, in order of primary succession, were Henry, referred to as Young Henry by historians, Richard, the protagonist of our story, Joffrey, and John, humorously dubbed John Lackland by his father for his lack of planned inheritance. Their last daughter, Joanna, will reappear unexpectedly in a later episode about Richard's life on the Third Crusade. At the age of four, Joanna was auctioned off to the King of Sicily and married at ten to a man interested only in her dowry. Henry II's interest in ruling England persisted. Despite spending only 13 out of 34 years of his life in the country, eager to restore the honor of his mother, Henry targeted the former supporters of King Stephen. However, he faced a significant obstacle. One out of every six Englishmen held an official position in the church. Many noblemen had purchased fake clergy positions to obtain clerical immunity, making them immune to prosecution by government courts. Upon his ascension, Henry elevated his confidant and best friend Thomas Becket to a similar position of archbishop, anticipating a compliant ally. However, Becket opposed Henry's vision of justice for former enemies. Attempting to try Becket on fabricated charges, Henry faced resistance, and Becket, with powerful allies in the Vatican, was swiftly reinstated. At one point, Henry publicly uttered the words, Will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Four knights took the charge literally and murdered Becket during Mass, turning him into an instant martyr and casting Henry as public enemy number one. While the Becket incident did not bring Henry down, it serves to illustrate his struggles in dealing with subordinates, a character flaw passed on to his children. As mentioned earlier, Henry pitted his sons against one another, treating them as commodities rather than fostering unity. Young Henry, his son and heir, was given a life of luxury instead of purpose. Born during the height of the Angevin Empire, a child in Henry's position would typically receive lands and titles in order to establish their reputation. Wanting flexibility in managing his children, however, Henry II provided young Henry with an allowance 
instead of land. As the designated heir, young Henry spent regular time with his father at the English court. Richard, the second son, affectionately known as the Spare in British politics, spent all of his time with his mother in Aquitaine in southern France. At this point, we can skip the third son, Joffrey, and the fourth son, John, spent most of his formative years without his parents, as he was sent to a British monastery for year-round education. The animosity between mother and John seemed to happen at the very, very beginning of John's life. Born in England, he was left in the care of a wet nurse, while his mother returned home to southern France without him. Aquitaine's influence molded Richard into a warrior poet. Immersed in the troubadourian culture that extolled chivalry as the highest ideal. The troubadours, a cult of traveling poet musicians, sang of knightly heroics and acts of courtly love. They filled Richard's youth with dreams of becoming a knight himself. Meanwhile, John, growing up alone and unloved seemingly by both parents, found little interest from his father except when Henry was able to bring up his name in order to offload him in negotiations to another family. John faced early engagements, with the second one triggering a series of complications for Henry. Attempting to arrange a two-for-one package with the King of Spain, Henry secured a marriage alliance. His eldest daughter, confusingly named Eleanor after his wife, was set to marry King Alfonso II. In exchange, John was to wed the daughter of a powerful Spanish count. Both marriages had the aim of expanding the Angevin Empire into Spain. Henry believed that he had struck a remarkable deal, but the Spanish king wisely questioned what he would gain in the nuptials. After all, Henry's daughter was now in line to become the Queen of Spain and Henry's son would receive a significant landholding in Spain, along with a dowry of $5,000. The Spaniards, however, would be left with just spouses. Fearing a potential withdrawal from the deal, Henry hastily gifted John three lucrative castles and the accompanying land in Spain, boosting his attractiveness for the deal. The three castles granted to John may have represented only a small fraction of the wealth of the Angevin Empire, but they delivered a massive psychological blow to young Henry. Already displaying restlessness, young Henry had compelled his father to buy him off in 1170 by officially crowning him King of England. However, Henry II had retained all of the land and power for himself, rendering young Henry a king in name only. Even as king, he had to seek an allowance from his dad. John, the fourth-born son, receiving three castles, now possessed three times the number held by young King Henry. This perceived slight proved unbearable for the young man, leading him to rebel against his father and plunging the Angevin Empire into a civil war split along family lines. 
everyone except John, supported young Henry against their father. Young Henry sought refuge in Paris, protected by an indignant King Louis, who was still seething over Henry's marriage to his ex-wife. Promising new lands to his brothers, the King of Scotland, and barons across France and England, young Henry quickly gained the support of Joffrey. But Richard hesitated, ultimately joining to support his mother, who also championed the cause of young Henry. Despite facing rebellion from his entire family, two foreign kings, and barons across his lands, Henry II easily quashed the uprising. His physical prowess in combat neutralized his son's rebellion. Employing mercenaries, considered the cruelest fighters of the age, Henry II demonstrated a ruthless approach. Unlike honorable knights, fighting for money was deemed a sin by the Christian church, guaranteeing an automatic ticket to hell. Individuals thus only joined mercenary forces during this era if they believed their previous actions had already condemned them to an afterlife with Satan as their permanent landlord. The sons decided to divide their forces, with young Henry, Joffrey, and Richard, each in command of a spear tip of their trident. Young Henry faced swift defeat. Joffrey surrendered with little resistance, but Richard held off his father's forces. It was during this resistance that Henry seemingly took notice of his son that resided in Aquitaine. Unable to break Richard, Henry resorted to drastic measures, incapacitating the King of Scotland and his old rival Louis, the King of France. The key to victory, however, came when Eleanor was caught attempting to escape dressed as a male servant. It was Eleanor's capture that compelled Richard to bend the knee to his father, and she served as a hostage in England for the remainder of Henry II's reign. Recognizing that history frowns upon the extermination of one's entire family, Henry opted for forgiveness and embarrassment instead. While he elevated John, the only child who sided with him, young Henry received an increase in his allowance, but no real power. Richard, shaped by the experience, developed a love for war and battle. As a new task, Henry directed Richard to deal with Aquitaine, its affinity for chivalry and war having led it to continue the rebellion. Richard and Eleanor had previously encouraged this uprising, and now Richard was tasked with returning home to quell it. In the hope that young Henry would find his backbone, his father compelled his heir, who was technically already the King of England, to serve beneath Richard's command for the conflict. With advice from his father and the support of mercenaries, Richard successfully pushed the rebellion underground, earning once again the admiration of his father. In 1182, after spending five years beneath his father's apprenticeship, Richard faced a challenging task of reconciling with Aquitaine's troubadourian culture, 
which made it difficult for the region to easily make amends with King Henry II just because his son did. During these five years, Richard ruled Aquitaine with an iron fist in order to suppress the rebellion he had directly fostered. Meanwhile, Henry endeavored to restore his position as the head of the family. Young Henry, still the heir, lacked sources of power he could wield independently, and Joffrey acted in his father's name in Normandy and Brittany. John, on the other hand, was given surprisingly little to do after his marriage with the Spanish countess had fallen through. Richard's conquest of Aquitaine was brutal, marked by a scorched earth campaign that exemplified his embrace of the Latin motto, Odorant dum matant, let them hate, provided they fear. Although the locals neither loved nor respected Richard, their fear of him kept them at bay. A notable event during this time was the Siege of Talagorge, a supposedly impenetrable fortress on the edge of a cliff. Richard conducted a scorched earth campaign within his own territory for seven straight days, forcing the defenders out. When they sallied forth, Richard's forces overwhelmed them, flanking and reaching the keep before the gates could be closed. For three days, Richard's men laid waste to the town before the garrison surrendered without terms. Richard then proceeded to level the entire keep in order to prevent it from being a powerful position in the future. Richard's ferocity seemed to quell Aquitaine's problems temporarily, at least until the introduction of the English custom of Prima Nocter in 1182. This custom ensured that the firstborn legitimate child inherits all lands and titles. In one of the first applications of this law, a troublesome count died unexpectedly, with only an infant daughter as a successor. Seizing the opportunity, Richard claimed lordship over the child, putting her on a marriage pedestal for loyal allies to court. This disgusting act triggered a rebellion in Aquitaine, as the nobility feared Richard would manipulate the law to seize their lands next, in order to ensure inheritance only for pro-Richard nobles. The rebellion was so severe that Henry had to join his son in the ensuing killing spree. During the joint campaign against Aquitaine, Bertrand de Bourne, a troublesome lord of the region, witnessed the combined powers of father and son on the battlefield. Recognizing that to defeat them, he must first divide them, de Bourne manipulated young Henry, convincing him that his father planned to elevate Richard to the throne. De Bourne also influenced Philip Augustus, the 17-year-old king of France who encouraged young Henry to launch a sequel to his earlier rebellion. The pretext for war was Richard building a castle in disputed territory. Young Henry believed Joffrey would join the rebellion, with each of them being aided by the people of Aquitaine. Before bloodshed happened, Henry II intervened, organizing a family meeting where he demanded Richard give the disputed castle to his older brother and swear loyalty. In exchange, Richard would receive lifetime ownership of Aquitaine, which was a completely acceptable deal for him. 
However, young Henry, having previously agreed to cede Aquitaine to France under King Philip, rejected the proposal. Frustrated, Henry abandoned diplomacy and just ordered Richard to yield the castle and swear loyalty, leading to Richard storming out of the meeting. Henry's attempt at diplomacy had failed, pushing him towards his typical plan B, violence. He summoned his army and headed to Aquitaine to teach his sons another lesson in war. But en route, Joffrey incited a local uprising against his father, and incredibly, Henry was forced to turn to Richard for protection, unintentionally aligning himself with his originally intended adversary. To ensure a fair fight, King Philip of France joined the rebels, igniting a 30-year war between England and France. France flooded Aquitaine with forces, but King Henry and Richard found an unexpected ally in the King of Spain, intent on capitalizing on prior marriage alliances involving Henry's daughter. As young Henry, Joffrey, and King Philip rampaged through Aquitaine, Richard and his father prepared for a prolonged and violent siege. It was then that a twist of fate intervened. Young Henry fell ill with a fever and abruptly dropped dead, altering the course of history in a moment of unexpected mortality. The death of young Henry shifted the dynamics of the war, as the primary motivation had been to place him on the throne of England. Now, that motivation vanished. King Philip's plans to recover Aquitaine for France were also rendered futile. Richard, now bumped up in the line of succession, became Henry's heir, and there was no chance that he would allow Aquitaine to return to French rule. The rebellion of young Henry abruptly ended with his death. While King Henry expressed dismay at losing his rebellious eldest son, stating, He cost me much, but I wish he had lived to cost me more. His reaction revealed that Henry did not fully grasp the lingering issue, Richard's deep attachment to Aquitaine. After the funeral, Henry adjusted the social inheritance ladder for each child. Richard became the heir, requiring him to move to England to be closer to the family seat of power. John assumed control of Aquitaine, as Joffrey had proven untrustworthy and was therefore exiled to France. Joffrey would die less than three years later, possibly after being trampled by a horse at a jousting event. Conveniently, he was replaced by one of King Henry's bastard sons, who was also named Joffrey, he was officially welcomed into the family as a replacement son and sent off to join the church. Richard's bravery in the face of violent conflict is evident throughout the historical records. However, when confronted with his father's plan to alter the family inheritance, Richard, despite his bravery, felt the weight of a scared child. While hinting that he would consider his father's proposal, Richard promptly fled his father's lands to return to Aquitaine. 
only after reaching safety did he send a messenger declaring that he would never give up Aquitaine, once again putting the family on the brink of an inter-family civil war. This time, Henry's attempt at diplomacy succeeded. He released Eleanor from imprisonment, placing her in charge of Aquitaine, appointing John instead as the King of Ireland. Richard, unable to oppose his mother's control of her homeland, relented and joined his father. However, he brought with him a thorn for the monarch's side, King Philip of France. Despite being on opposing sides in the previous conflict, Philip and Richard had developed a strong friendship. A chronicler from 1187 reported that the two men were so close that at night the bed did not separate them. The close relationship between Richard and Philip has led to speculation about Richard's sexuality. Some suggest that this line, along with Richard's lack of numerous affairs or illegitimate children, points to a possibility that Richard was gay. However, most historians view this line as a political rather than a sexual act between the two kings, symbolizing Richard's closeness to the enemy of his father. Some even argue that there is as much evidence for Richard being asexual as there is for any specific sexual orientation. One of the things that I really like about teaching Richard is that the question regarding his sexual orientation means virtually nothing to those who study him. It's just something that floats in the background. Whether they were lovers or just friends, King Philip of France used their close relationship to manipulate Richard away from his father through a familiar weakness, Alice, Philip's sister. In a prior agreement, when she was only eight years old, Alice was sent to England as a ward of Henry, promised to marry Richard when he reached an appropriate age. However, Richard, now 27 years old, was well past the typical age of marriage. As Alice grew older in Henry's care, she became his mistress, creating a delicate political situation. Philip desired a safe marriage for his sister, preferably to Richard, with whom he had cultivated a budding relationship. However, Richard is reluctant to marry someone who has been involved with his father, and the possibility of his asexual or homosexual nature adds another layer of complexity. Admits this love quadrilateral, a significant event distracts Richard. In 1188, Salah al-Din captures Jerusalem from the Christian King Guy of Lusagon. Richard is the first to swear a crusader's oath and immediately plans to travel there by ship. Henry and Philip, shamed into declaring for a crusade, intentionally work behind the scenes to slow Richard down by designating the next year or two for proper crusade preparation. The introduction of the first Salah al-Din tithe, a joint tax by Henry and Richard, marks the first tax in England not on property ownership in order to directly fund the crusade. Richard continues the tithe for the next few years, 
causing financial hardship throughout his kingdom. This financial strain sets the stage for the final twist in the Devil Brood saga. Once again, Aquitaine rebels, and Richard responds in his typical fashion, laying waste to his enemies and invading French Toulouse for supporting the rebellion. As the fighting intensifies, Henry II chooses to insult his heir rather than assist, with many historians viewing this as a stall tactic by Henry, who had no interest in fulfilling his crusader pledge. Sensing a growing division between the two Angevins, Philip strikes at the heart of Aquitaine. The sides eventually all sue for peace, and although the conflict is directly between Richard and Philip, Richard denies his father's offer to serve as arbitrator and volunteers Philip as the moderator for peace instead, highlighting Philip's success in slowly poisoning the relationship between father and son. Philip's breadcrumb trail questioning why John is the only one not attending the crusade adds to the success of his divisive tactics. To end the fighting, Richard makes three official requests. First, he must be officially and publicly proclaimed heir apparent to the throne. Secondly, he must immediately come into possession of all Angevin lands, relegating his father into retirement. Third, he must marry Alice without delay. The inclusion of the third request is likely Philip's doing, as Richard will work overtime to delay a wedding night with his father's mistress. When Henry II predictably refuses the three requests, Richard kneels before King Philip of France and swears an oath of loyalty. This act is incredibly significant, as many knights in England had already sworn loyalty to Richard, won over by his repeated courageous acts of chivalry. They in turn would be duty-bound to fight the enemies of Richard, which in this case was their king, his father. Upon refusal of the terms, war breaks out again between Richard and his father, despite a last-minute attempt at mediation by the Pope. Interestingly, it is Richard's last request, giving up Alice that becomes the sticking point, not because Henry loves her, but because he wishes her to marry John, allowing him to sell off Richard's marriage rights to a higher bidder. This time, the war went poorly for Henry II. His knights refused to heed his call to arms, and he resorted to burning a bridge down to slow Richard's advance. However, the Lionheart's knights found a suitable crossing nearby. Henry even burnt down the suburbs of one of his own cities to create a firebreak between them, but this too backfired as the entire city burnt to the ground. On July 3rd, 1189, Henry, sick with dysentery, gave in to the demands of his son. He placed himself in the hands of the King of France, paid Philip 20,000 marks as restitution, recognized Richard as his lawful heir, agreed that Alice would marry Richard after he returned from the crusade, 
and announced a firm departure date for the crusade in 1190. Lastly, he was forced to give Richard a hug. From that moment, however, it became clear that Henry II did not intend to go quietly into the night. Whispering into his son's ear, May God let me live until I can have my revenge on you. On July 6, just three days after agreeing to peace, Henry passed away from disease. Philip rewarded his friend, ally, and former enemy by gifting back Henry and Richard's lands to the Angevin Empire, along with a gift of 24,000 marks. Richard immediately set to cleaning up his father's messes. He restored individuals that his father had sidelined and disgraced, arranged, and more importantly, carried through on marriage promises that had been left hanging out to dry and named Arthur, a four-year-old, as his immediate heir, cutting his brother John out of the line of succession. He even found time in this interim period to free Scotland. However, his main focus was clear. Richard's first act as king would be to take back the Holy Land in the Third Crusade. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.